There's a distinctly personal connection to this episode. It's an interview with my nephew, Chris Thorpe. When my brother's son was growing up, choosing a gift for him was never a problem. A lifelong obsession with cars meant that anything with wheels would do very nicely, thank you. So you can imagine his joy when he began writing about cars for a living, before moving into more commercial roles with Nissan and Jaguar Land Rover. He now works as Chief of Staff to the Board of Directors at JLR, and in this episode he shares some fascinating insights about leadership, communication, and a tricky encounter with a pop superstar. This is the first of two interviews that I did with Chris. We focused more on the business side of things in this one, but he'll go on to talk about the role of his family in supporting his career and some wider issues around well-being. My name's Andrew Thorpe. Welcome to Leaning Forward. So earlier this week, I listened to probably the best podcast I've ever heard with Gareth Southgate, who is one of my all-time heroes. And I was so engrossed with what he was saying that I actually missed the exit off the motorway as I was driving (laughs) along. It was as if I was in the room with them, but unfortunately it did make me a little late for work that morning. So we have high standards to set here, do we not, Chris? Well, it certainly set the standard for uh, an engaging podcast, yes. Well, I can't think of anybody I'd rather have on the podcast, um, even Gareth Southgate, than you, um, because I have followed your career with great interest. Um, And uh, obviously in the setup to this show, I've explained what our relationship is. um, And so so let's talk a little bit about about how you got to the point where you are now. So let's start by, if you would, summarising what it is that you do for a living, and then we'll get into how you got there. Well, my job role is currently Chief of Staff for Jaguar Land Rover, which is a job that, frankly, not many people know what it is. So I often find myself explaining what I do. And in its simplest form, my job is to enable the board of directors of the company to achieve everything they need to achieve. And that really means that they have all of the right information coming to them at the right time that we see all the big topics coming towards us and we're prepared as a business for those. But with my second hat as chief of staff is really around communications, which is really my background in making sure that we're communicating everything effectively Mm. as a business, both internally and externally. Because as I followed your career, it seemed to very much follow a communications path in terms of your area of expertise Um, And oddly enough, that's where you and I, I guess, cross over to some degree, because this is a a communication themed podcast. And so tell us a little bit more about how you got to that point and and go back as far as you wish, because what I'm interested in is where your interest in motor vehicles began, because I guess that is going back a long way. But I'm curious to know where that where that started for you. Yeah, well, I mean, that goes right back to childhood. Um, I've always been 
uh, obsessed with cars, you could probably say, and I can actually remember all the cars that you used to arrive at our house in as a boy. I can remember you turning up in a, a Volvo 440, Class. I remember. Yeah. Long, long time ago. Yeah. Anyway. I'm all... sorry it wasn't a Jaguar or a Land Rover, by the way. Though. Well, there's still time. There we are. Um, but certainly from an early age, just obsessed and uh, with cars in, in every sense. And that led me to some pretty brave choices and I started my career because I actually wasn't on the path to become any kind of communicator when I went to university. I went to university to study engineering and it was a choice that um, I sort of drifted into because I managed to get some sponsorship to go to university, um, which funded my, my place at university. But very quickly uh, in the run up to that, it became clear that becoming an engineer wasn't going to suit me. I spent the summer before university working for uh, an engineering firm. And after a month of marking up architects' drawings with where sockets should go in rooms and light fittings should be, should go in, I, I just knew this wasn't not, not for me. Not your thing. Not for me at all. Yeah. So that spurred me on to uh, write to car magazines and say, look, I've realised what I really want to do in life is to become a motoring journalist. Mm. And to their credit, both Autocar and Auto Express magazine wrote back to me. Mm-hmm. Which doesn't always happen when you speculatively approach people. No, and it was um, a real turning point for me that they did that. And I can remember very vividly um, being in my house at the time with my mum and Shelley, my, now my wife, girlfriend at the time, looking at this reply from Auto Express that invited me to London to do work experience and to start a different path. And I actually said, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And you were living in which part of the world at this time? So at this time, it was in Shropshire. Mm-hmm. So we were right in the middle of the countryside in Shropshire. London was a long way from home. The big city. A long way from home. <laughs> I think I'd been there once. Yes. Um, and the thought of dropping this funded university place at a very good university to go off and try something else was just too scary at the time. However, both my mum and Shelley said, you're mad. You've got to do it. So I got on the train, went down to London, uh, booked myself into a a youth hostel in a dormitory and did work experience there and essentially never left. So I got on really well, really clicked with that group of people, really found my niche writing about cars, being able to create stories about cars. And this was with Auto Express magazine. Auto Express yes. magazine. So one of the two that you speculatively approached. Yeah. 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 And fantastic bunch of people. Mm. But a great lesson there in the sense of, you know, if you want something, then then proactively do something about it. Yeah. Because I guess a lot of people will be afraid of rejection. They wouldn't be, you know, have the courage necessarily to, to approach people directly like that. And it's probably one of two or three points where I've had to make really brave choices mm. in order to just take those big steps in my career. Mm. Um, so there ensued eight years of living out my boyhood dream of writing about cars and rising through the ranks at Auto Express Mm. magazine before the next opportunity arose, which was to jump into a more commercial Mm. role for for an agent. But but in a way, so you're going down this path of becoming a journalist and presumably you you enjoyed writing when you were younger. Yes. Um, Did working for Auto Express change the way that you thought about, about writing prose, about writing copy? 
and expressing yourself on the page. It it did. I mean, I had to effectively learn the craft from scratch. You know, I, I came into that publication um, tasked with washing cars and making the tea, uh, and then earned my way to actually have my name in print in bylines, and then eventually running sections of the magazine. Um, but learning how to understand how to frame a story, how to connect with your audience, how to get a new story across very quickly. Um, those skills have never left me and have actually set me up really well into a, a career based on communication. And what would be an example of, of, um, of a good journalistic practice in terms of you know, framing that story? What, what would be a, a mistake that maybe beginners would commonly make? Typically either trying to get everything into the first line or get nothing into the first line. You've got to get that balance right. The temptation for everybody is to do a Jeremy Clarkson-style drop-lead story where you're talking about something completely different before you actually get into the, the, the meat of the story you're mm. trying to write. But you've effect that's a very high-level skill. Mm. You've got to build up to that point. Yes. So just taking it back to basics, getting your key messages very clearly put across early on in whatever piece of text you're writing mm. should be what everyone is striving so for. So the key, the key message sort of up front, because if people don't go beyond that, they won't yeah. have got what you wanted to get across. But in an interesting way yes. as well. Yes, yes. Fascinating. So let's carry on with the chronology then. You're at Auto Express. So I'm at Auto Express. I'm um, achieving... Uh, it's things that I've never thought I would be. So I was road test editor at that point. So in charge of all of the testing across the magazine. And I had a phone call with an opportunity to go to do a, a more commercial role. So working for an agency providing words, effectively copy for car manufacturers. And I actually didn't think about it for too long before before taking the opportunity. It was quite a big step up financially. It was into a much more um, business-orientated role, which interested me a lot. And bear in mind, I was only, what, 27 or something? Mm. And I'd already got pretty senior in the magazine. So I've always been very conscious of plotting my path, plotting my career. And to be at quite a senior point by 27, I was thinking, well, I'm going to have to step somewhere else to carry on progressing here. Otherwise, I'm just going to carry on as I am for the next 20 years. That's not going to happen. So I took the step and went to work for a company called News Press. Um, and that was a massive learning curve because I became a director of a small company. Mm. So it was only about 30 employees. Um, really, I was out of my depth in terms of management and leadership, yes, I had, had no training, which you didn't have to do at Auto Express. You you were, no, you were a journalist, you exactly. I was a journalist. Brief. I had a team of three people there, and all of a sudden, I had a team of thirty people. Yes, and the difference was also the the team of thirty were not all enthusiasts. You know, that some of them were just there to to do a job, to mm. get a paycheck. Mm. It, it it was the difference between working with enthusiasts and working with colleagues. Yes massive learning curve mm, 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 mm. and what specific techniques or principles did you learn during that time i mean obviously i want to ask you that question again when we're more up to date now but i'm just thinking of those early lessons of that first experience of managing people well at that time you know, i worked for a managing director called tim who's still a friend of mine today and i learned a lot from him he was a great people person um but and i would say this if he was sitting with us today he's not very patient <laughs> so he and I often played a, almost a good cop, bad cop scenario where he would deliver some of the tough messages and then I would be more the 
the ear to lend to the team and sort of reconciling any situations yes. that had come up, which helped me lean on some of my own core skills of mm. being able to talk to people and communicate with people, but probably in the end made me always the deputy. You know, mm. I wasn't mm. really taking the ownership of situations, but it was a great learning experience for me to effectively be the wingman of a managing director mm. of a small business. Mm. Mm. Um, so I did that for uh, three or four years um, before effectively then hunting a job. It's safe to say I asked for it to go and work for one of my clients at that agency, which was Nissan. And that was another big step. So that was to work for Nissan in Europe. So at that time I was living on the outskirts of London and I had a team in Paris and another couple of people in Geneva. So I started doing the hopping around on planes thing each week. Oh, what was the title that you had there? So Nissan? I was content strategy manager for okay. Europe. Mm -hmm. So my job was really getting all of the stories about Nissan mm -hmm. in Europe disseminated to each of the countries who have their um, own language-specific websites to then deliver out to customers and journalists. So it was a real kind of story hunting and then management of content role, which suited me very well, and I enjoyed it a great deal. So the sort of thing I was there to do at Nissan was to, to draw stories out of the organisation. And it was, a as, a as a lot of car companies are, it's a really, at its core, it's an engineering business. And engineers don't often know when they've got a great story. They know how to do a fantastic bit of engineering, but they can't often tell you which part of that engineering task is the fascinating bit. And a great example of that was when I was talking to some engineers about the Nissan Note when we were launching that car. And they were telling me with some reluctance about a feature that they had engineered on the car, because to them it was correcting a bit of a, a problem that they'd found with the car and that was that the camera on the back of the car would get dirty the, the camera for reversing so you drive around once you've found where you want to park put it in reverse but of course you've been driving around and it's all muddy everywhere so the camera's covered in dirt can't see where you're reversing so they were a little embarrassed that the camera was exposed to the dirt so what they'd engineered was a system that squirted a bit of water on the camera and then a bit of air to blow the water off the camera and this all happened very very quickly it was a fantastic piece of engineering and I thought this was amazing and I, I wrote this story up it was about the blow dry camera that they'd created <laughs> and it was all very popular but actually to them it was a bit of an embarrassment mm. but to me it was gold because they didn't get it right the first time exactly mm. I think that story is really interesting because it's the different perspective of people who are close to what they do. They see a problem as an engineering problem, but you see it through a different prism in a, in a completely new light yeah. as, a, as a journalist by uh, background. This is why a lot of companies will employ journalists now to come in engineering companies to really spot what's interesting. Mm. Because it's not always the things that were most difficult to do or cost the most money or delivered that leadership attribute that they wanted for the product. It's often the journey that got them there mm, mm. that is the most interesting thing. But you've got to have that fresh perspective, yes. fresh pair of eyes to yes, see that. Yes, yes. So again, back to the chronology. So you're doing this work at Nissan, and then what? So at that time, I worked for a fantastic leader called Gabby Whitfield. Um, and Gabby, at that time, 
got herself a promotion. So she left Nissan and went to work for Land Rover as director of communications for Land Rover. And as she was going, she said, I'll be back for you. <laughs> I'll be back. <laughs> and I said, well, I, I hope you are. I, I hope you will be because Land Rover is a company that I've always loved as from, from back my boyhood playing around with cars in the countryside. There were Land Rovers everywhere. So I had a real affinity for that brand. So I hoped that she would come back. And then uh, after about six months, I got a call from her saying, I think we've got something for you. Um, so long story short, um, I moved there to be uh, effectively her deputy. So senior manager for product PR for Land Rover, mm-hmm. um, which was a another big step for me. Um, it was a true PR job as opposed to a content or a writer job. So it was an, another step slightly further away. How would from... you characterise the difference then? So a PR job in that sense is is all around communications, be that talking to a story to a journalist, writing a press release, writing a blog post. You're, you're doing the full thing. Whereas the sort of content writer job would be commissioned by a PR person. So at that time, I wouldn't have had to sell you my story. I'd have just written it very nicely and handed it to a PR person to, to manage. Then carry on the work, yes. So effectively, you're, you're both poacher and gamekeeper in mm. terms of dealing with the story and then okay. the output of that. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I had a fantastic couple of years working for Gabby, moved my way up through the ranks at Jaguar Land Rover, um, and then moved into more corporate communications, which was another one of those big steps. Um, so it was a promotion for me, and I started to really get into the business side of communications, but more in the slightly new space at that time of sustainability. So big companies, this was five years ago or so, Big companies were really focused on how do we explain that we care about the world Mm. and we care about the environment. And it was, again, a case of surfacing a lot of what was already happening in the business and framing it and communicating it to the outside world. So that formed the core of my job, which we termed responsible business director Mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. So it was about making sure we were acting responsibly as a business and then communicating that effectively. Yes. Um, so that was the next big phase for me. Uh, uh, that was a big learning curve as well. Learning about how businesses operate, energy use, energy sources, recycling, all these new topics, um, which I found absolutely fascinating. Mm, mm, mm. Just going back to Gabby for a minute, what was it about her that you admired so much in terms of her leadership style? Well, I learned from Gabby the importance of team. So she was a great leader of teams and would go out of her way to make sure that there was cohesion amongst the group of people. She was very good at empowering managers who worked for her, which was something I hadn't seen done as well as that before. Some would say that perhaps I took on a lot of the management on her behalf, but that was entirely deliberate and Mm. appropriate. Um, and it gave me a huge amount of experience because effectively she was acting as the director. I was then her senior manager, managing the team of six or seven managers. So it was a really structured way of working, mm. which which worked very well for us at that time. Mm. But presumably, it, it, in order for her to empower people, she's got to, first of all, believe in them, believe in their capability, 
but also get them to believe in themselves, you know, to build their confidence up a little bit to say, well, no, you can do this. You don't always need to come to me for guidance and, yes. you know, what to do. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. There was a lovely trick she uh, she did a few times that I saw where we would have team off-sites and she would bring a little personalised gift for each person. But it always had a meaning behind it. So I remember one time I got um, a little child's um, diary um, because she said, here's somebody who needs to manage their time a little bit better. And she gave me a little diary. And there's all these little funny gifts. Yes. So, you, so you'd go away from that team offsite thinking, oh, she's just giving me a pink kid's diary. Why is that? <laughs> and then it would click as as time went on. So it was disguised feedback then, was it? Very much so. Yes, yes. maybe not that much disguised. Yes, just, just disguised enough. Yeah. <laughs> So does this bring us up to date now? Is there a step between where we are now in the chronology and what you do now as, as chief um, of staff? There is one more step. Mm-hmm. So um, I took over, in fact, during the last 18 months. So the last 18 months have been incredibly um, busy in that I took over as corporate affairs director for Jaguar Land Rover during the pandemic. So what that means is you're in charge of all of the corporate communications for the company. So anything that affects the company's reputation, good, bad, ugly, uh, has to be managed very carefully uh, through the corporate affairs team. So I took over leadership of that team during the pandemic. We um, had a changeover of CEO during that time as well. So I had three months of um, elegantly exiting the previous CEO with the press and then welcoming another one. So an awful lot going on whilst also handling, of course, leading a team while we're all scattered to our home offices. Um, And that really culminated in bringing us up to date on becoming chief of staff, which was really a a better description of the role that I had taken on for the new CEO from day one. It's time for a quick break now, where we'll hear from an actor, writer, coach and fellow podcaster, Jackie Goddard. Her show is called Power to Speak, and she interviews a range of wonderful people, each of whom has a fascinating and inspiring story to tell. Here's just a taste of what you can expect. My creativity at its best, it's a real exploring, it's a surprising journey. I think creativity is just the the antidote to insanity, and it's productive originality. Surprising answers, inspiring stories, motivational, educational, inspirational. Wise words with Power to Speak the podcast. Find us on your favourite podcast platform or watch on YouTube at Power to Speak the podcast with me, Jackie Goddard. Thank you, Jackie. And now back to my interview with Chris Thorpe. Now, this this role as as chief of staff, and um, I'm I was always a big fan of the West Wing, so I think of Leo <laughs> McGarry from the West Wing uh, under uh, President Bartlett. Yes, um, and I think there are examples in British politics. I think maybe Alistair Campbell was often seen as a chief of staff to uh, to Tony Blair. So, how would you characterise this role? Well, I mean, I've had all of the the banter you can imagine about the <laughs> chief of staff, uh, the West Wing, designated survivor, various Netflix uh, uh, dramas have been quoted at me. But really, the the best way I can describe it is being the facilitator around a board of executives. So making sure that everything just happens in the right way, in the right order, and that it's seamless. 
So I do. A, I spend a lot of time with the board one-to-one and also with the CEO one-to-one and then eventually bring that together with board meetings, project meetings, make things actually happen for the business. Mm. And it's really a coordinating role. I often say what me and my team do is we just join the dots mm. within the mm. business. Do you, can you? Is there a, like an analogy or something similar in an unrelated area that you've figured out as a, it's a little bit like X? I mean, it's a good point. I don't think I've quite landed on it yet. Mm. The closest has to be to the Prime Minister, the Chief of Staff, the person that's always around them that you don't always see, mm. but they make sure the Prime Minister is always armed with the the right words yes. or the yes. right knowledge to tackle the question they're yes. about to be yes. given. It's interesting because obviously this, this podcast is, is about communication and storytelling features a lot in this podcast. That someone once described storytelling is it, it's like um, the facts are the dots on the page, but it's the story that joins them up. So this idea of joining things together, which may otherwise work independently of one another, is, I think, really interesting. Definitely. And you can apply that concept to the way the story is constructed, but also in more abstract sense of seeing things that aren't joined up properly. So people are effectively working on two different chapters of the same story, but they haven't worked out it's the same story yet. Yes. So actually putting them into the, the in contact with each other yes. and joining two work streams together happens an awful lot. Mm. When you're a big, complex organisation, it's very easy for people to start going off at tangents mm. and just spotting that, bringing it back together, maximising mm. the value they can deliver is really what the, what the brief is for, for me and my team. Because I, I had a question for you about what, what do you have to be good at to do this role? So I guess one of those things would be to be able to see the broader picture, to see that 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 larger picture rather than the individual jigsaw pieces and see that maybe that's not working with that and so forth. How how would you sum up what you need to be good at to do this role? Well, as as my boss said to me, the main thing you've got to do is see all the angles, see all the angles in every decision, of which there may be many. And often uh, a team that's very close to a topic will be ploughing forward because they can see a revenue opportunity or they can see a cost saving or whatever it might be that is their primary driver. But they may have been blinded to a risk that that brings into the organisation. Mm. So being able to see those angles around anything that's going on is crucial. Mm. It's like if you sort of press one thing in, something will pop out somewhere else. There are consequences elsewhere we, in the organism. We talk about whack a rat all the time. Mm. You know, you've got you whack one down, there's one come up somewhere else. You've got to have your both arms whacking all the time. <laughs> it's an analogy we use a lot. But another key skill I would say is diplomacy. You know, often what I'm doing is not not seen or is not even asked for, um, but just being able to have the right conversation in the right way at the right time mm-hmm. in a diplomatic way is is really a key mm-hmm. skill. And in, there are there are like certain this. roles, aren't there, in 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 life which are very public roles. You can see the skill, the talent at play. And then you look at something like a referee in a, in a football game, you know, if the, their role is to almost they're noticed, then they're probably not doing a good job. Mm. So they're letting the game flow, but they're actually very, very skillful. Yeah. So there are certain sort of more lower key roles, which are nonetheless necessary for the good functioning of the, of the organism. Mm. But they're not necessarily the glory positions that everybody sees. Just like a referee, you have to be able to know when to take control know when to step in and also know when to just let things play through mm. 
And that's quite... I'm definitely on a learning curve of that one. Mm. At what point do you make the intervention that disturbs a process, even though you know it's going to cause some disruption? Or at what point do you just let something go and see what happens? What's your approach to um, public speaking? How have you... Because presumably you've had had more and more exposure during your career of having a microphone thrust in front of you or being on a camera or having a stage of some kind. Tell us about the evolution of Chris as a speaker in public. Well, it's something I used to run away from uh, (laughs) as fast as I could. Um, But it is something that I have forced myself down quite a long and steep learning journey on. To the point where now I actually enjoy it. Um, but if I go back probably five years, I've had five years um, benefit of some really, really um, deep leadership training, um, coaching, mentoring, which has been fantastically beneficial to me and has helped me to accelerate my career. And one of the threads of that has definitely been public speaking and presenting because my natural uh, uh, auto decline function. <laughs> I have to suppress that. Yes. Uh, and take the opportunity because it's actually now a really important thing. Yes. As part yes. of my. Because you've never struck me as a showy person. You know, you've always seemed to me to be a, 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 a sort of more on the quieter side, studious, very, very interested in things and reflective. So, have you had to become more assertive in the sense of almost trying to be a little bit more, you know, showier? Well, I think the way I would describe it is I've massively improved and increased my ability to manage my own self. Mm. So being aware of what my normal is and then consciously switching that up when it's required. Mm. And you can apply that to any setting. That can just be in a, in a meeting with a team. You know, my natural stance will be to listen. Uh, and take it all in mm. before really saying that much at all. Mm. And I've had to, as I've become more senior, proactively manage that and actually understand that people expect you to make more of a contribution early yes. on. Yes. Even if that's just signalling the fact that you're going to do quite a lot of listening in yes. this meeting. Yes. But articulating that completely changes the setting. Mm. If you don't say that and assume people know that, they might think you're disinterested, they might think you're thinking about your next meeting or that you don't care. Mm, mm. So you've got to really be aware of how you show up. Mm. And then you can apply that as well to opportunities. So, you know, I get offered to go and speak at a conference um, and I have to think, right, is this an opportunity that I should be taking rather than shying away from? Yes, yes. But I mean, this topic I think is fascinating because it's... We've talked a lot in this podcast before about the difference between introverts and extroverts, and we've looked at this this idea of being an ambivert. And I think what you've described to me is is classic ambiversion, you know, where you've taught yourself to be more assertive when you need to be, to be more forceful when you need to be, even though it might not be your natural default. Mm. And I was listening to David Mitchell, the you know the comedian and the 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 um, the, uh, the, t- the TV celebrity, I guess he is, but he's he's a very very thoughtful guy talk about the, the fact that he's naturally extroverted but of course people who are more introverted tend to process things internally they you know they they, they, they they draw their energy not from what's happening on the outside it's more on the inside so they're naturally more reflective but often people think well haven't they got anything to say 
you know, sometimes they they may be seen as 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 disengaged or, as you say, you know, are they not interested? But actually, they're very thoughtful and reflective people. And he was saying that the problem with that is that you know more introverted people are much are just as likely to come up with good ideas as extroverts. But extroverts get more practice at articulating them, which may well mean that they're good at selling bad ideas mm. <laughs> simply because they're getting more practice. And I actually hadn't really considered it that way before, but it's very true, isn't it's it? It's true, absolutely, absolutely. Because the you know more introverted people, quieter people, more reflective people are just as capable of coming up with good ideas, but they're not they're not getting the regular platform to share them. Mm. And the ones that I've noticed have become like Susan Cain wrote an extraordinary book called Quiet. You know, she is a a more reflective, quieter person. But you you watch her on stage or when she's on a panel interview. And she performs very, very confidently, but she's taught herself to be that way when she needs to be, which I get the, the essence of what you're saying is similar. And you know, I've, I've done quite a lot of research on this topic because it's been important to me over the last few years. And one of the best things I read was, you know, you can be more introverted than extrovert, but it doesn't mean you're a recluse. You know, mm. you've you, you still got to be able to step up and out when mm. it's required. Um, and that's certainly something that I've I've learned to manage proactively myself, yes. but also use as a benefit. Yes, yes, yes. When I was doing Land Rover PR, we used to sponsor a sailing team, Ben Ainsley Racing, which is a big high-profile sailing team. And one weekend I went down there and we were hosting um, some guests on a boat to go out into the Solent and watch the, watch the racing. And I knew we had some high-profile guests, but I probably hadn't quite done my homework enough on who we had. So I was introducing myself to various people and again, putting myself out there, doing some networking, not my natural stance. Um, so I was introducing myself. Oh, hello. Yes. I'm Chris Thorpe from Land Rover. I'm Chris Thorpe from Land Rover. And this gentleman said back to me in a very loud voice that everyone could hear. He said, Oh, hello. I'm Simon Le Bon from Duran Duran. <laughs> <laughs> And actually, it just set a very nice tone. Mm. And we all then had a, a laugh about the fact that I had no idea who he was. Uh, and you know, he was perhaps from a generation. A different above. generation, yeah. Chris. Yes, more my generation. But that, that was a funny moment. Um, there was also a time at a, at a motor show when I was the lead communications person. And I had to get our CEO from our stand over to the Tata stand, Jaguar Land Rover is owned by Tata, um, and they had a press conference, and he had to get there in time. So off we go across the Frankfurt Auto Show, which for anybody who knows anything about auto shows or doesn't, in fact, that is an enormous distance. Think of a normal auto show or any expo, times it by five for Frankfurt. It's enormous. And I'd underestimated how far it was, right? So I'd left about five minutes. Ten minutes in, we're still walking across this stand. And our CEO at that time did not uh, suffer fools, right? <laughs> so we're walking increasingly quickly. And I'm saying, oh, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. We then get to this enormous building with multiple layers on it. And I hadn't, I hadn't ascertained that there were five floors to this building. I didn't know which floor the particular press conference was on. So I said, you stay at the bottom, sir. And I was running up and down the stairs in a suit and literally drenched in sweat. And eventually found it by the time the conference had finished, of course. So I took the CEO. I was very apologetic. And he didn't say anything. And I thought, well, this is, this is bad. This is the end of, end of the road for me. <laughs> 
So we walk back in more or less silence and he doesn't say anything. And I think, oh my goodness, have I got away with this? I don't know what's happened. Anyway, the next day when we leave, he still hasn't given me the dressing down that I'm expecting. But as we leave, he just put a piece of paper in my pocket. And I thought, oh no, this is it. This this is how it happens. So after he'd gone, I took the piece of paper out and all it was was a map of the whole stand that he'd marked with a timeline of how long it took to the different places. <laughs> that was his list. That, he never said any more about it. That wow. Was all he got. And it must have taken a bit of effort on his part to do that, to draw that absolutely, absolute diagram. Yeah, but it was a very, very nice touch, actually, because he could have absolutely screamed, <laughs> given, given me the full hairdryer treatment. Yes, it could have been, could have, you could have had an Alec Ferguson moment there, couldn't yeah. you? One imagines that your job is quite stressful at times, Chris. It has and been said. I'm keen to know how you manage your your physical well-being, but also your mental well-being. Big topic. Big topic that we discuss a lot um, in, in our organisation. For me personally, it's quite a lot about physical first. So I run a lot and if I miss a few days of running, I really start to feel it. Not only because, you know, I haven't done any exercise, but also mentally, because the two come hand in hand for me. So running gives me that time to really just clear my mind. And actually, sometimes I am thinking about work, but it's just in a different way because it's to a different rhythm and your body's working in a completely different way. And crucially, I'm not taking any calls. I'm not looking at any emails at that time. So that's a big thing for me, keeping the exercise going. Mentally... I've been through many different um, a- a- approaches over the years of trying to trying to work out how best to manage stress and pressure. And the job that I do now is probably about as pressured as, as any that I've done. But to me, it's about accepting that there is only one of me. I, I can't do multiple things in different places at different times. So planning what I'm going to do executing that plan and understanding that that is what I'm there to do. I, fi- I take great comfort in that. If I'm trying to do too many things and failing at everything, that includes outside of work and inside of work, that uh, it doesn't work at mm-hmm. all. So mm-hmm. for me, it's about being quite disciplined with accepting you're going to be able to deliver what you can deliver. Yeah. It's mentally signing up to that and delivering it. Yeah. And so just finally, and, and, and again, thank you so much for, for the time that you've taken to do this interview. What, what sort of hopes do you have for the future, both for yourself and maybe in, in a broader sense? Well, if I start with a broader sense, um, I, I'm really hopeful that if I take an industry perspective, that the automotive industry can really thrive through the next phase. We are going through a massive transition phase as we move from internal combustion engines to much cleaner electrified powertrains. And in doing that, we're also trying to still be profitable. We're trying to still employ the same number of people. We're trying to keep uh, the supply chain going. And I really hope that we can manage to find a way through that, that that keeps the fantastic industry together that we've we've enjoyed for the last however many decades. We can do that, um, but it is not without its challenges. So from an industry side, we, we are on a, a very, very difficult but fascinating path. Personally, I want to take... Um, a really active leadership role in that transition that the industry is on. And I'm 
massively fortunate and privileged to be in the position that I'm in and effectively have a front row seat as the industry that I love is going through this once in a generation transformation. So I just want to keep that seat mm. and, and deliver as much uh, good work as I can really. Well, you say you say fortunate and privileged, but I've watched your career with great interest and great pride, of course, as we all have. Um, and I think you've deserved all of the success that you've had. So thank you. Um, I wish you well for the for the future. And thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. That's all for now from Leaning Forward. My thanks to Chris Thorpe for giving up his valuable time to be our guest today. And do check out my fellow podcaster, Jackie Goddard and her show, Power to Speak. You can find it where you normally listen to your podcasts, or on her YouTube channel, Power to Speak, the podcast. Thanks again for joining us at Leaning Forward. Do subscribe to our show, keep listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>